Well, the thing is, I didn't think that worms were cute at first. It's after you know working with them that I was like, oh, these are so cute. They're the worms. But then, like, if I show them to my friends, they're just. Uh, something about the fact that I know so much about them and then I also like spend so much time like taking care of them that it's just like, well, they're cute now. They're mine. <laughs> I'm in the Loki Stem Cell Research Building in a room filled with incubators, bacterial shakers, and the occasional mouse surgery. This is my lab partner. My name is Roshni Thatchell. I am a sophomore and a prospective biomedical computation major. We're in this building nearly every day of the week to work closely with our research subjects. These tiny, regenerative flatworms called planarians. We squinted the worms through a microscope. They have oblong bodies, and they swim away from the light as fast as they can. This is State of the Human, the podcast of the Stanford Storytelling Project. Each episode, we take a common human experience, like breathing or crashing or joking and bring you stories that explore and deepen our understanding of that experience. I'm Claudia Haymack. This episode brings you stories about caretaking. What happens when a caretaker relationship becomes complicated? When you have to sacrifice what you've cared for for so long? When lives are in danger, what do people take with them? And what do they leave behind? In a mother-daughter relationship, can roles be reversed? I promise I'm going to talk about humans and the human condition. But first, back to my worms. The flatworms have this weird power of being able to regenerate from almost every part of their body. If you cut a worm, which is tiny, less than the crescent of your fingernail, into over a hundred pieces, each piece can regenerate into a full worm. That's like a person being able to regenerate from their hand. This regeneration is one of the things that makes studying worms so cool. But as part of my research, I have to cut worms into pieces. And based on the experiment, they sometimes don't regenerate, meaning they'll die. It was like this interesting contrast. Whenever we were like feeding them or cleaning them, it was like, oh, be super careful, like don't hurt them at all. And then next thing you know, we're like chopping them. I wonder if I might be a little too attached to them. At one point, I made a custom t-shirt with a picture of a worm on the front. I know, but we're not just taking care of worms. Our goal of our project is not to create some like miracle, like medication or anything like that. Like we're just trying to learn more about a specific um, part of stem cell uh, renewal. Just being able to learn more about that specific part like contributes to the knowledge base that like future researchers can draw upon when they're making their experiments. There's a strange conflict of what you're caring for when you clean the worms and you feed them and make sure they're healthy, only to later use them for research. When the worms are sick, like for instance, if they get a bacterial infection and start falling apart, I do think, oh no, my worms. But I also think, oh no, we won't find out anything new from this experiment. We won't contribute anything to knowledge. My lab partner and I still wrestle with sacrificing a living thing for research. One night after a year of working at the lab, I was home watching TV when I suddenly thought about the worms. I Googled whether worms can feel pain, ending up reading lots of research on the topic. The answer turns out it's complicated. If they feel pain, it's probably not like the pain we feel. At that moment, I had to know what the worms felt. 
I started lab research without any intention of becoming this caretaker for the worms. But producer Emma Heath found someone who went searching for work that filled her need to care for something. So, um, I hope you don't mind. This is a shoe-free home. Oh, uh, yeah. Ronnie Falco is a midwife. But before she had ever even seen a birth, she did something a little bit different. She programmed computers. I don't know that I had ever seen a video of a birth. Um, I had never been at a birth. I really hadn't paid much attention to birth. Uh-huh. You know, I was a single programmer and... Birth is not a hot topic in programming circles. (laughs) Until one day, Ronnie's close friend asked her to be there while she gave birth. She asked a few friends to be with her. We were all so naive. I mean, it's laughable in retrospect. Her her husband had read somewhere that laughter was good in labor. And so he he brought in, I am not kidding, a flatbed truck with the TV. I believe there's TV, VCR... And a very large box of comedy videos, and this was when it was VHS tapes, not DVDs, uh, that we thought we were all going to be watching and laughing our way through labor. (laughs) Ha, ha, ha. Well, labor gets very real very quickly. And um, uh, by the time I got there, uh, my friend was in some amount of distress. Her friend is having a lot of trouble, and Ronnie is wondering who's helping her. Where are all the nurses? It was shocking to me how little support she got from the hospital system. I, I just imagined that this woman is having a baby. This is a medical facility. You've got lots of staff. Who's helping her? And the only help they would offer was, was drugs. But Ronnie's friend didn't want drugs. She wanted to have an unmedicated birth. You know, it was, it was very clinical. But no, the nurse was in no way staying there to support her, either physically or emotionally. And so with the staff missing, Ronnie stepped in, helping her friend breathe, talking her through the experience. <laughs> she was in the chair. I was breathing with her and then talking about the beach and the waves and the sun and who knows what. Uh, I was able to help her um, get through the rest of her labor, and she had a lovely unmedicated birth. During this all... She experienced something totally unexpected. She was overwhelmed by the feeling of being in the room. Watching her friend, she was enraptured and even felt kind of high. You know, it's like, oh my gosh, a baby just came out of this woman's body. <laughs> and the baby's all happy and pricking up and, you know, doing baby things. But it was, it was really a feeling of, oh my gosh, what just happened? What did I experience? As much as Ronnie hated the sterility and the drug focus of the hospital... She was overwhelmed by the power of the birth itself. I was thinking, I don't know if I can safely bike home, but it was, uh, all I can say, totally mind-blowing. When she returned to her programming job, she still couldn't stop thinking about the inexplicable power of this birth. It it, it was uh, several days of just being overwhelmed. People will talk about being called to midwifery. You know, in some ways it's kind of a highfalutin sort of term. We don't talk about callings too much anymore. But I did, I did feel a, a, a strong pull to it in a way that was not really rational. Not to mention that her day job was, well, boring. Many people who work in software will tell you that they end up working on projects that ended, end up getting thrown away. And I worked on a number of projects that ended up getting thrown away. There's kind of a feeling that you've you know, given your heart, and, you know, your, your blood, sweat, and tears for something that just got thrown away. 
in contrast, birth is very, very real. And and you're clearly helping people. This, you know, programming job, you know, it was quite, you know, quite amusing. Um, and I really enjoyed it, but seemed a little pointless in the big picture of life. Ronnie comes from a big family. And when she was little, she helped out around the house with her younger siblings. She practically raised her younger sister. When she got older, she helped her siblings with their newborn babies. But it had never crossed her mind that this was something she could do for a living until she lost her job. So then it was like, oh, okay, this is a decision point. After some searching and unable to shake the emotional draw of that first birth she experienced, Ronnie decided to be a home birth midwife. She turned away from the big tech world of Silicon Valley, away from the sterility of hospitals and the imposition of institutions. It took about a year to change my brain from programming work, which is not emotionally based, to working with birthing women, which is very much emotionally based. She turned her home into her office and now spends months asking mothers about their ideal birthing experience, about what motherhood means to them. She wants to give women a way to experience that powerful thing she witnessed without the stress of hospitals. I mean, midwifery is a very strange combination of clinical and personal skills. And my, my first responsibility is uh, clinical safety. You know, I have to check the mom's vitals and I have to be monitoring the baby's well-being. The rest of it, it's like, is she in the tub? Is she out of the tub? Is she walking? Is she lying down? Is she, whatever. Ronnie starts delivering lots and lots of babies. I mean, midwives have lots of slogans, but, you know, sometimes they'll say, putting the care back into caregiving. And I don't know if you have any idea what happens in hospitals. They are getting better. The nurses have a job, and the job is to weigh and measure the baby and call the numbers into the nursery. And they are not thinking about the fact that the mother and the baby are having a bonding experience. So they just take the baby away. It's like, oh, okay. So when you, when you learn how important it is for the mother and the baby to have that special time together, and you see it just totally disregarded in the hospital, <laughs> uh, it's hard not to be an advocate for um, for the specialness of that time right after the birth. And at home birth, we absolutely protect that. She tells me this is a vital human experience and that women are missing it because hospitals think of all women as the same and perform the exact same procedure on all of them. Oh, every birth is different. Um, every woman needs a different things. In hospitals, every woman gets the same uncomfortable bed, the same kind of hospital room, the same set of instructions and breathing techniques, and all of them are expected to leave as soon as possible after it's all over. But in many ways, birth has been moved into hospitals, so it could be under the control of the masculine infrastructure. For most of history, women were in control of birth care in the form of doulas and midwives who had the wisdom and experience. It was pretty much the one medical field women were allowed to be involved in. Then, in the 19th century, with the rise of modern medicine, male practitioners started taking more control of childbirth. But 
Men had never been involved in childbirth before, and they didn't ask the midwives for help. So they made lots of mistakes, and they actually designed the experience for their own comfort at the expense of mothers. You might have heard of forceps, those diabolical tongs used to extract babies until the mid-20th century. And even though hospitals now are generally safer places to give birth, the remnants of that male-dominated past lingers from the uncomfortable positioning of the chairs meant to aid the doctor rather than the woman to the epidurals. We've turned what has always been a very intimate, personal, and female experience into a medical operation. Birth is technically a medical procedure. They think they're doing it. Ronnie works to return that birth experience to women. I, I got into midwifery. It was, a, it was a strong feminist component. I mean, it's, it's, it's tough as, as a midwife to be there because you, you have the mother's life in your hand, you have the baby's life in your hand. The idea of reclaiming birth is really empowering, but the reality of it can be more complicated. You know, if that baby's born and not breathing, you are the only person in that room who can handle it. She argues that it's the only way to give women the option of a more personalized birth. In some ways it sounds so silly, but over the years I have come to realize that for a home birth midwife, my primary job is just always to be making the decision, are we safe at home? Do we need to go to the hospital? Are we safe at home? Do we need to go to the hospital? She feels like it's her job to put off the hospital as long as possible, and hopefully never go at all. But sometimes things go so wrong that she's forced to take a mother to the hospital. She told me that feels like a failure. Midwife is from the German roots with woman. In some ways, it's not that different from, you know, when you're with a child, you're sort of supporting them in their process of play or whatever they're doing. These mothers trust Ronnie with a really vulnerable moment in their lives. In that way, being a midwife isn't really about taking care of babies. It's about taking care of mothers. It, it's, it's natural that the way midwives are with women in labor also models caring, supportive behavior for them when, as mothers. You can mother someone without treating them like a child. I asked Ronnie if she ever wanted to have kids of her own. But when it comes to her maternal instincts, she's always focused more on her clients. I, I imagined that I would have a large family. You know, when you come from a large family, that seems like the norm. So I always imagined I would have a large family. But um, yeah, as I got into my 30s, and I chose midwifery. Yeah. I mean, there, there's a mom who had five babies with me. I can remember, picture her sitting right here. Oh, she, she's um, on the younger side. She might think of me a little bit like a mom. Now, after being a mother to mothers for 20 years through 400 births, Ronnie is about to retire. She might miss her maternal role, but she'll still have her cat. Hi, Kitty. Yeah, so it's all about the cat. With her days of programming long behind her, she doesn't really look back with many regrets. I did what I felt very, very moved and almost compelled to do at the time, to change careers. So um, that was my life path. I have the satisfaction of feeling that I followed my path. In a way, Ronnie was ahead of her time. A Silicon Valley success story. That piece was produced by Emma Heath. 
In medicine and science, you try to control so many factors. The way you pipette, the way you position your hands as you deliver a baby, the way you follow a procedure. But what happens when you are pulled away from all your routines? When something can't be controlled and caretaking becomes more of an so instinct than an uh, intention. We traveled to Sonoma County after the wildfires this fall. Oh my gosh. So there was, uh, this is our property up to the right, and um, you see a lot of dirt and rock or burnt dirt. I'm with Claire. Another student is with her husband, Josh. We're driving to where her house was, at the top of the hill. And you can see uh, up ahead that where the white fence is, that that fence just melted away. She walks us around the burnt landscape. Uh, we had a refrigerator in the garage, which is now just a twisted metal hunk. The fire came late at night. So just before one o'clock, Josh called me. Claire woke up her 12-year-old daughter, Sophie, and gathered all she could. And that glow had gone from in the distance to maybe halfway up the sky. And at this point, I could hear this roar coming at us. I ran back inside um, and I grabbed our other dog and my phone and um, my wallet and we ran back outside and now the whole sky was red. They were about to drive away when and I said to Sophie, I just have to try to get the cat. And I ran back through the house and the power is off and it's black in there and I have this imprint of the fire on my eyes and I'm going through the house and I'm tearing open the doors because I want that cat to get out if he possibly can. The wind is whipping into the house and things are flying like branches are flying and I run back. She couldn't find the cat. Today it's calm and almost peaceful as long as you don't look at the burnt ground. Across the property, Josh is with another student, Helvia. My name is Helvia Tyna. Looking for anything they could salvage. You know, like it, it makes sense that some things would be recognizable, obviously, you know, a bathtub or... Some things or some, that seem fine, like we saw a bunch of books that had been burned. I mean, it looks, it's like, it looks perfectly like a book just splayed out. And then the, the second you touch it, though, it just falls apart and it's all ash. But the, it's a book that burnt and just burned in that position. Sometimes you could still even see the print. Um, and as soon as you would touch it, it would just like disintegrate into powder. This was uh, an autographed baseball. We came across these baseballs that he had that were autographed. So I'm a big uh, baseball fan and Giants fan. And uh, so these were autographed baseballs. They were just charred. It actually looked like a, like a ball of yarn. It was kind of like a string just wrapped up into a ball. Can we help you sift and look for jewelry? We found a watch of hers and we brought it back to her and kind of presented it to her and she said, yeah, this is a watch that my mother gave to me when I was 16. Um, and she kind of held it, but she's like, it's, it's trash now. I can't use it. Um, so that was sad. Claire doesn't want to dig through the rubble. She's generally positive, but we stay some distance from Josh and Helvia. And this part, I can't watch, so I have to not. You guys can be here, but I can't do this. 
to him it's important to sift through and see what he can find and you know see if he can find my jewelry or whatever it is that's it's important to him to to do that and I respect that but it makes me feel a little sick to my stomach it's not the way I really want to remember my house or my things I think particularly when you have such a dramatic exit it just uh, highlights the importance of life and maybe diminishes the importance of stuff. Then uh, the cat that we lost, um, it's called Rainbow Bear, which is a silly name, but he was a little feral kitty. He came to us when he was about three months old and was so scared and so anxious, we thought that he needed a fun name to help him be less anxious. So we called him Rainbow Bear. And I cried a lot for the cat. So I keep coming up hoping that he'll pop up, you know, that he's just been hiding out here somewhere. We eventually went to um, the master bedroom, um, or where the master bedroom used to be, and um, Josh said, like, yeah, I think the cat would have been, um, like, under the bed. I was like, is that the bed? They're like, yeah. I thought maybe if we found it, it would be helpful for the family. We didn't find the cat. We did not find Rainbow Bear. And he made us laugh a couple of times. It felt kind of bad laughing. You have to have, I think you have to have a sense of humor about some of this stuff. And so I, I make jokes about how my, uh, my checklist really got narrowed down, right? So clean the garage, done. Declutter the closet, done. Paint the fence, done. I wanted to remodel, <laughs> so, so now I get to remodel. And this is not the way I planned it. I laughed at the, at the chicken joke. The bucket we use for uh, scraps for the chickens. <laughs> Where are the chickens? We only had one chicken left, and I think he went to chicken heaven. Mm. Hopefully not to Colonel Sanders. <laughs> uh, when his friends and family ask him, like, what can we do for you in this time, um, he tells them, please just send me pictures of my kids when they were little. Send me photos of us from our yearbook. I think whole chunks of your life can just kind of go dark if you don't have anything to remind you. You, you remember things that you forgot that you had lost, you know, so something, you see something that triggers a memory, you go, oh, you know, what about, you know, the card from the kids, right? Those are the things, like I can replace a washer and a TV and all that stuff, but it's photos of my grandmother, you know, I don't, I've got to check with my brother, he, I hope he has some, I'm sure there's some in the family, but all those things that I had, the pre-digital era, I won't have. That piece was produced by Crystal Escalero, Helvia Taina, and me, Claudia Hamer. Special thanks to Claire Millard and Josh Weil for sharing their stories. Claire and Josh, as parents, were responsible for taking care of their children's past. Their photos, their stuff, memories. Right now, they're reconstructing their home and their past. In our next story, roles are reversed. A child takes care of her parent. It was uh, around the... Um, the time was around 10 p.m. Uh, no, no, 9 p.m. And I, I when I look at the, the, the clock... This I is my mom. She was diagnosed two years ago with major depression and generalized anxiety disorder. She's telling me about a call she got. It's a... It's a female's voice. 
I cannot remember exactly the word. Mom doesn't remember exactly what the caller said. But by the end of the call, she's been told that nothing is real and everyone she loves has died. My younger sister Emma called me that night, distraught, in a panic. I woke up and it was like the middle of the night. Then I just, I see mom in the darkness next to me, standing very still. And she just keeps repeating dad's name. Every breath she took was like, dad. And also then occasionally then she would change to Wei and then you. Was she able to tell you what was going on? No, no. It was like pure panic. And there, and, and I did not get a response from mom at all. Any clear sign that she even knew that I was there. She kept asking me, mom, tell me, say things. I wanted to say, but I could not talk out. Mom wanted to tell Emma that dad was gone that he died centuries ago, along with Wei, our older sister, myself, and the rest of our family. The voice had told her that her house, the neighbors, the high school down the street, were all an illusion, and that anything she thought or said, they would know. I had this feeling that my mind was controlled by something. I do not know I'm alive or I'm dead. And so I, I, I feel like, you know, I, I cannot die, I cannot alive. And my voice keeps saying, I want to die and go back to my family. But I could not do that. Six months earlier, mom stopped being able to sleep. She'd wake up in the middle of the night, afraid of something she couldn't name or lie awake in her bed till morning, mind racing. Then came the panic attacks. The first panic attack sent her to the hospital. I think I have a heart attack. I could not breathe, could not talk. It was like pure panic. Mm -hmm. So I called 911 and the paramedics came. The second panic attack sent her to the psychiatrist. And he said, oh, this kind of problem, I can drag the family to a huge death and a burden. Oh my God, what's going on? And when she finally checked herself into critical care, she hadn't slept in days. I was at school. Dad was away. I needed to come home. I came home and found an empty house. I knew that mom was in a hospital, but I wasn't sure where. So I called around and found out that she'd spent her first night at the inpatient rehab treatment center for alcohol and drug addiction. The psychiatric crisis response center had run out of beds. When I finally saw her, she was so small. Her clothing hung off her, a little too big. I didn't remember her being this small. In 
In the hospital visiting room, my mom put her head in my lap as she clutched her temples. She had a headache. As she lay her head in my lap, I wanted to have a plan. I wanted to tell her that things were going to be okay. After four nights in critical care, it's time to go home. Mom's not quite ready yet. The doctors say as much. But insurance is refusing to pay for more stay. See, unless you're suicidal, there's not much they can do. Mom had just started a new job when depression moved into the house that she bought and painted cheery yellow. Maybe depression just understands irony and has a flair for the dramatic. Officially, Mom has three months of disability leave before her job is terminated. We try not to focus on that, but the sound of the phone ringing or the shuffle of letters pushed through the mail slot on our door sent her into a small panic. So we focus on the little things, like trying to eat. But Mom can't today. She keeps looking out the window like she's watching out for something. Or maybe it's the food. Note, read up on whether loss of enjoyment in a home-cooked meal is a side effect of depression. I'm personally hoping it's not. I'm the one who's been cooking. Mom's pacing around the house. I ask if she'll slow down, tell me what's on her mind, but she can't concentrate. She can't even talk. I find I'm starting to finish Mom's sentences. At the doctor's office, she'll trail off, get confused, and the doctor's already shuffling his papers. For some reason, I'm frustrated with her because Mom's trying to tell the whole story of how she became this way, and maybe he's already heard it before. Or maybe playing audience is a job for therapists. Maybe he knows that all stories end in a prescription. Sometimes it feels like the doctor is shooting darts blindfolded. Wherever the dart lands is the prescription we'll try for the week. The trick is to find the right mix. Balance the nausea against the headaches, against the inability to poop. You have to have at least two, and none of the three come with the guarantee of a good night's sleep. Mom slept four hours last night and woke up this morning feeling clear. It's been two weeks since she last felt this, so she's sitting at the computer trying to answer emails. But soon she's too anxious to concentrate and her hands are shaking and she's blinking and the headache's coming, so I force her to stop. Anxiety strikes more now because Mom's sleeping more. She's getting better. Though it's possible we'll live with depression for a long, long time. For now, every meal... Every clear moment is a small step. Tonight, I'm teaching mom how to waltz. I was dancing with my darling to the Tennessee waltz. I've rolled up the small carpet in our living room to make a little space for us to dance. I tell mom, listen. Concentrate. Introduced her to my loved one. Can you hear the beats? One, two, three. One, two, three. One, two, three. We dance. She tells me she worries. I don't worry, I don't worry. One, two, three. I caused a family burden. But this, all these worries go quiet as we dance. 
Yes, I lost my little darling The night they were playing The beautiful Tennessee one Mom is at peace for the first time in a long time. One, two, three. When you point this microphone in front of me, I feel she's smiling as she tells me. I feel quite intimidated, so make me nervous. One, two, three. I'm nervous too, Mom. I'm worried that I haven't shared your whole story. I'm worried that tomorrow morning you'll forget this moment of peace you're having. That we're having. One, two, three. But, Mom, there will be more clear moments. There will be more moments like this. The story isn't over. We'll tell it together. One, two, three. One, two, three. Sarah Yang, thanks to the Braden Storytelling Grant. Today's program was produced by me, Claudia Hamack, Crystal Escalero, Emma Heath, Bella Lazareski, and the staff of the Stanford Storytelling Project. Special thanks to the students who joined us on the Sonoma trip. For their generous financial support, we'd like to thank the Vice Provost for Undergraduate Education, the Program in Writing and Rhetoric, Stanford Arts, and Bruce Braden. You can find this and every episode of State of the Human through our website, storytelling.stanford.edu.